Hello and welcome to all talks of the Second World Sepsis Congress. This week we will give an update on adjunctive sepsis therapies, chaired by Jean-Marc Cavaillon from France. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Jean-Marc, over to you. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm happy to welcome you to uh, this uh, session of the Second World Sepsis Congress. Uh, we have a very exciting session on update on adjunctive sepsis uh, therapies. And uh, I'm happy to welcome all the audience from more than 150 countries. Um, our sponsor uh, for this session uh, is Baxter, that we wish to thank for his uh, participation. Our first speaker will be Jean-Louis Vincent. He is a professor of intensive care medicine at the University of Bruxelles. He is the president of the World Federation of Societies in Intensive and Critical Care Medicine and has been the president of other societies such as the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, the European Shock Society, the International Sepsis Forum. Is the author of more than 900 uh, articles and 400 book chapters in review. And of course, he's very well known in the, in the field. And uh, especially uh, also everyone is knowing is an international symposium on intensive care and emergency medicine that is organizing for more than 38 years by now in Brussels. So Jean-Louis, happy to welcome you and listen to your talk on recombinant human trouble thrombomodulin. Thank you very much, Jean-Marc. It's indeed uh, exciting to address uh, this topic. As you can see from this first slide, the management of sepsis has three components, the infection control, the hemodynamic stabilization, and what we will speak about now is the use of thrombomodulin as part of the modulation of the host response. We know that the endothelium is a very important target in sepsis and other acute diseases, and there is an interaction between the coagulation system and the inflammatory uh, response. Um, this has been shown in a number of, uh, of studies, and since our time is limited, I will move on and uh, indicate that uh, activated protein C was a or is a very important um, player in this field and we could show uh, already 17 years ago that um, activated protein C can reduce mortality rates in septic shock and very interestingly we could have a good explanation as we understood more and more how activated protein C works. Unfortunately, another quickly uh, performed study was totally negative and the so-called Xygris was taken out of the, of the market. Nevertheless, um, there is a sound rationale for its use and we could show with um, these uh, instruments allowing to evaluate the microcirculation that activated protein C could improve the microvascular perfusion. So this was a very important step. We thought that we could go uh, and actually uh, target 
the endothelium through the coagulopathy uh, which is present. And in this uh, sub-study, it was shown that patients with severe disseminated intravascular coagulation benefited more from activated protein C than the others. If I am mentioning this, it is because thrombomodulin obviously acts in concert with protein C, and they do act on the endothelial protein C receptor. Thrombomodulin also has other uh, activities, including on the complement pathway, and it also interacts with high mobility group B1, HMGB1. So it's not just an anticoagulant as heparin could be. There are very good experimental studies showing that thrombomodulin can protect animals uh, from uh, uh, organ dysfunction. And this is true also in sepsis. This is true also in ischemia reperfusion of the kidneys, for instance. Now, if, you, if we quickly progress to the clinical data, there are good data indicating that the, the, um, that the um, plasma-soluble thrombomodulin levels are associated with worse mortality rate in sepsis and ARDS. Now, for a while, a Japanese company has uh, prepared a recombinant human-soluble thrombomodulin called Recomodulin, or ART123. And they did uh, studies in Japan on patients with disseminated intravascular coagulation showing that it may actually reduce mortality rates in this patient population. Now, the data may not be entirely convincing to all of us, but they led to the commercial availability of recombinant thrombomodulin in Japan. So we already have some interesting observation from the um, use of thrombomodulin in septic patients in Japan. And using uh, propensity scores, a number of multi-center studies have shown that thrombomodulin administration may shorten the uh, hospital stay, lower hospital all-cause mortality, and provide a longer survival time. Interestingly, the bleeding complications do not seem to be a big problem. Now, in all these studies, and this could be anticipated, the sicker the patient, the greater the benefit. And if we go back for a moment to the PROES study with activated protein C, it was the same observation. Patients with a high Apache 2 score were more likely to benefit. So, um, again, this is a recent study showing that anticoagulant therapy with um, uh, thrombomodulin can result in lower mortality rates, especially in the sickest uh, patients. So we recently wrote this editorial saying that there may be a place for this type of compounds in patients with severe coagulopathy, especially when it's associated with sepsis, as shown here in this meta-analysis the higher the risk of death, the greater the benefit with recombinant thrombomodulin. So with this in mind, um, we 
um, we uh, did a, a study in patients with sepsis and coagulopathy. Uh, let me first quickly underline that in terms of pharmacokinetics, hopefully, we do not need to adjust the doses very much in patients on renal replacement therapy and apparently not in patients with moderate liver dysfunction as well. So that's something which is uh, worth mentioning. Now, we need to better characterize the patient populations, and as I wrote here in the recent paper, we should not do prospective randomized control trial on two heterogeneous patient populations. That's how I do not think that sepsis therapies uh, should be looked for. We should look for specific subsets of patients who may benefit from this particular intervention. That's what we mentioned in the JAMA, for instance. We need to look for specific patient populations, and that's what we can call personalized medicine, maybe not precision medicine, but personalized medicine, which is much better than the poorly characterized patient populations that we have studied for so many years with negative trials in sepsis. So we have a number of ways to characterize the, um, the septic patient. And since with thrombomodulin, we target the coagulation system, I think it's appealing to go for a disseminated intravascular coagulation due to sepsis. And in the first study, we, it was a phase 2B study, uh, we reported five years ago that there may be a survival advantage in patients with severe coagulopathy and uh, uh, respiratory or cardiac dysfunction. That's how we went on and uh, did another uh, large study, which is a phase three study now, including 800 patients, and the study was completed recently. So we enrolled patients with infection, organ dysfunction, cardiovascular or pulmonary, and a coagulopathy characterized by a prolonged INR and thrombocytopenia. Now, we can only, um, we can only show you the first data because they were part of a press release uh, further data will be presented at the European Society meeting in, uh, in Paris uh, next month. But as you can see on this slide, there was some reduction in mortality rate. Being 29.4% in the placebo group, it went down to 26.8% in the ART123 group. You may say that the difference is only 2.6% which is actually not meeting the, um, the, the, the criteria we choose for positivity. But I think personally that we are in a gray zone here. We cannot say that the study is negative. We cannot say that the study is positive. We are doing some further analysis on subgroups of patients based on the severity of coagulopathy, based on the type of organ dysfunction, based on uh, the uh, timing of intervention, based on the severity of the disease. Clearly, we will need additional data. But I think the data are quite 
positive in a way. Uh, they are even exciting because we cannot expect too much from these new therapies. When you think at uh, what can be really influenced by a new by a new therapy, so uh, here it is uh, uh, a a ten percent uh, reduction in, uh, in, uh, in in mortality rates. If we look at twenty nine percent going down to twenty six point eight percent, so this is not totally positive, but it's not bad. And so the nice thing, I believe, to finish up is that this may be valuable not only in sepsis, not only when there is an infection, but in patients showing signs of coagulopathy and organ failure associated with DIC. So it's possible that in the future, a signal could come from the lab telling us that the patient has these alterations very easily recognized in any hospitalized patients. So to conclude, there is an urgent need for new sepsis drugs. The importance of coagulopathy is well established. Endothelium is a valuable target. There is a wide availability of simple blood tests to, to identify the suitable patients. And here we have a study now showing some reduction in uh, mortality with this intervention. So there is more to come. Stay tuned, and we will have more data presented in Paris next month. Thank you. Yeah, uh, regarding the, 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 the better uh, way to, to treat the patient with a personalized medicine and finding subset of, of patients. So the ART-123 study, was it including uh, that type of uh, intern, uh, characterization of the patients or it were just uh, introduced as septic patients? No, no, no. As I said, it was uh, infection plus coagulopathy as, uh, as reflected by a prolonged INR and a low platelet count. So we needed to have these criteria present to enroll patients in the trial. So that's how I refer to personalized medicine Indeed, we, don't, we didn't want to just enroll patients with sepsis. I think that's over. We should no longer do that. And I know I'm preaching the convinced because you, Jean, yeah, sure. have done these studies on this. Absolutely. And also, you mentioned the sicker the patient, the better is the effect. So do you think as well that uh, clinical score should be taken into consideration for the inclusion of the patients? That's a good question. Uh, we could either take a score or we could have organ dysfunction criteria. Uh, as you know, in some studies, they took uh, either an Apache score or a SOFA score. Probably the SOFA score is even better because the Apache score takes into account elements like age, uh, presence of cancer, uh, which indeed influence outcome but may not necessarily influence the response to a new intervention. So we already wrote several years ago uh, an editorial in critical care medicine saying that we should not use an Apache 2 score to uh, refine the, the patient enrollment. Uh, we should rather select them on the basis of uh, organ dysfunction. And that's what the clinician would like to do at the bedside. We don't want to calculate a score but simply look at the uh, the presence of organ dysfunction. 
Okay, Daniel, uh, Jean-Louis, I think our time is over. So I thank you for your presentation. And I think we need to move on for the next speaker. Excellent, um, thank you. Thank you, Jean-Louis. Uh, the next speaker is Peter Peekers from the uh, Department of Intensive Care Medicine in Radboud University in Eimingen in the Netherlands. He's professor of experimental intensive care medicine, has co-authored more than 300 uh, articles and 25 chapters. And uh, to have visited the place, I know that he has a very uh, efficient de specific design unit to study um, the endotoxin in human volunteers. And this is providing uh, a bunch of great information uh, in human volunteers. So, Peter, uh, Peter uh, are you with us? And then yes, we, I this okay, excellent. You will talk about the alkaline phosphatase. Yes, thank you so much, Sharmark, uh, and uh, welcome uh, to all the listeners that are uh, online. I will talk about uh, alkaline phosphatase uh, uh, as part of the STOP API study, the sepsis trial of alkaline phosphatase in acute kidney injury patients. So actually, we know that from uh, sepsis research that, for example, gram-negative bacteria contain endotoxin, and this is actually recognized by immune cells, and so the whole pro-inflammatory response uh, is started, uh, and pro-inflammatory mediators are released, and actually, as a collateral damage, this might induce uh, organ dysfunction and even death in, in septic shock patients. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, endotoxin contains two phosphate groups, uh, and if you would remove these phosphate groups from the endotoxin, it's no longer active anymore. And that's why alkaline phosphatase becomes interesting, because we know alkaline phosphatase as a measure for liver dysfunction, but we should realize that uh, it does so by detoxifying toxic compounds. So uh, alkaline phosphatase is also able to remove phosphate from, for example, endotoxin, and thereby the endotoxin is no longer pro-inflammatory, but actually an antagonist. Uh, and so if this pro-inflammation is inhibited, uh, maybe the whole inflammatory cascade uh, and the deleterious effects in organ function and uh, survival are also influenced. Uh, actually, there are two small uh, phase two studies that were uh, conducted with bovine alkaline phosphatase following a lot of animal uh, research that showed beneficial effects. Uh, and in these trials, it was actually shown that indeed patients with sepsis that were treated with alkaline phosphatase uh, showed a more pronounced improvement in their endogenous creatinine clearance, uh, as well that their need for renal replacement therapy tended to be lower and also the duration uh, on renal replacement therapy was lower. However, these were very small trials, only 36 patients per trial, uh, and this was done with a bovine alkaline phosphatase. Uh, but based on these results, the company actually decided uh, to develop uh, a human recombinant alkaline phosphatase. Uh, and what they did is combine uh, the placental form of alkaline phosphatase with a very long half-life in the crown domain and the intestinal alkaline phosphatase uh, that is very biologically active in the catalytic domain. And so the recombinant was a combination of both uh, and so that we would have a very active alkaline phosphatase but also a very long half-life. Well, the safety was shown uh, in phase one studies and then uh, the trial in septic patients with AKI was designed. So this trial consisted of, consisted of two parts. First, in part one, 
there was a dose-finding part with uh, three doses of alkaline phosphatase against placebo. And then in part two, uh, in a blinded fashion, a DSMB uh, decided what was the optimal dose and part two was conducted with that optimal dose. Um, what we looked at was, again, uh, creatinine clearance from day one till seven, uh, but also uh, renal replacement therapy needed by the patients up to day 28, uh, and also day 60 and day 90 follow-up, uh, especially re relating to mortality and major adverse kidney events. What we did in this study is the usual inclusion and exclusion criteria. Patients, of course, had to provide informed consent or their next of kin. These were adult patients. They were allowed to have sepsis for four days, no longer than that, because we want to have a clear relationship between the onset of the sepsis and the onset of the API. Uh, and also, the API should be there not longer than 24 hours to improve the possibility uh, to uh, have a beneficial effect of uh, a therapy. The exclusion criteria were similar as seen in previous trials, so we don't want any pregnancy-positive drug-abusing leukemia patients in this trial, uh, and all the other exclusion criteria are very uh, common as well. <clears throat> so the trial was built uh, as two parts, and uh, as you can see in this slide, in the first part, the three doses and the placebo contained approximately 30 patients per group, uh, and then following on, uh, the optimal dose was uh, was chosen by the DSMB. It turned out to be the highest dose. Uh, nobody knew that while well, the trial was uh, conducted. Uh, and this dose was then uh, continued, uh, and all the patients that were included during this phase uh, uh, contributed to the, pri uh, the primary endpoint uh, of efficacy as well. Well, of course, this, uh, in this trial, the, it was a randomized and blinded trial, so it turned out that the groups were very good comparable, uh, as you can see in this uh, table one. Uh, and you have to believe me that uh, they were very similar, uh, actually, except for uh, a few important things. Uh, it turned out that uh, the renal function in those patients that uh, received placebo was a little bit better uh, compared to the uh, alkaline phosphatase treated group. Uh, these are small differences, but we think uh, later on that this might be of importance, and that's why I am highlighting it here. So the interim analysis with all the three doses groups and the placebo group showed that in the placebo group, uh, the average uh, endogenous creatinine clearance over the first week was 46 mils per minute. Uh, and actually, in the 0.4, it was a similar number. Uh, in the two high-dose groups of alkaline phosphatase, it was 63, 63 in the 0.8 milligram group and 60 uh, in the 1.6 milligram group. Uh, so based on also on this efficacy and also on uh, adverse events, uh, the DSMB decided uh, that the trial should be continued with the highest dose. Uh, and important to emphasize that this was still blinded to all study personnel. Uh, then for the uh, treatment emergent serious adverse uh, events and all adverse events, the safety was a very important of this first inpatient uh, trial. Again, a lot of numbers in this uh, table. Please, you don't have to uh, look at the, uh, them uh, in detail. 
what I can show you is that the number of adverse effects was similar in all groups. There was no signal of any dose dependency in any specific side effect, uh, and also no formation of antibodies of any relevance was found against this recombinant alkaline phosphatase. Uh, so you have to trust me on that. Then next, the efficacy. What we did find in the first week was that the increase in endogenous creatinine clearance was not significantly different between the active group and the placebo group. And also, the key secondary endpoint, renal replacement therapy incidence, was not significantly different between groups. Uh, so the primary endpoint was clearance over seven days. This was exactly the same, and I will illustrate here in more detail. Uh, so no therapeutic benefit of this compound. However, we did look for longer-term effects as well, uh, and we measured creatinine clearance up to day 28. And if that data is also included, the whole curves become significantly different, as you can see here. And this is uh, based on the difference in creatinine clearance on day 21 and day 28. So this is a benefit on longer-term uh, renal function uh, by recombinant alkali phosphatase. Then the survival curves. This is the Kaplan-Meier curve of those patients that were treated with placebo. Uh, and on day 28, 26.7% of these patients died. In those patients that were treated with alkaline phosphatase, mortality was significantly lower. And on day 28, it was 14.4%. This was a significant effect. And also up to day 90, this significant signal uh, was still there. So have a look at the major adverse kidney event, uh, events uh, on the longer term. No difference between groups uh, on day 28. Uh, on day 60, there was a significant benefit uh, in the active group compared to placebo. Uh, and also on day 90, uh, the May composite was significantly improved uh, in patients that received recombinant alkaline phosphatase. And this difference on day 60 as well as on day 90 was mainly driven by the difference in uh, survival. So because this strong and unexpected effect on survival, we did additional exploratory analysis. And what we did was we, uh, we did a multivariate analysis in which treatment was included, but also, for example, uh, other organ dysfunction, so SOFA scores per point. And as you can see, the hazard ratio is still significant if we have these other factors included in the model as well. 50% uh, reduction of the chance to die uh, with alkaline phosphatase, while uh, SOFA scores, if they increase naturally, there's an increase in mortality as well. Uh, and we also did it in another way, uh, a forward stepwise multivariate analysis uh, in which we had significant predictors of bad outcome, like a package score of uh, the clearance at baseline, uh, and still uh, the treatment arm, so treatment with recombinant alkaline phosphatase was uh, uh, beneficial to these patients and it remained significant. And as you can also see in the lower part of the uh, slide is that we found that there was a, uh, a very important relationship between the baseline creatinine clearance with a median value of 40 as zero uh, and that those patients with a lower uh, baseline creatinine clearance had a higher chance to die. And so the small difference uh, between groups might be of importance there. We looked uh, at the pre-specified subgroups 
uh, and we found no effect of baseline inflammatory markers or baseline tubular injury marker levels uh, uh, and no effect of time between the uh, diagnosis of AKI and the start of the treatment. We did find an effect of renal function at baseline and the treatment effect. So as you can see, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, if you can see here, uh, those patients with a baseline creatinine uh, clearance of more than 60 had a much better prognosis than those uh, with a baseline clearance of less than 60. And if you look at the therapeutic uh, uh, efficacy of alkaline phosphatase, there was no therapeutic efficacy in those patients with a good renal function, with a clearance above 60, while in those patients with a baseline creatinine clearance below 60, uh, the beneficial effect was most pronounced. But all these are post hoc exploratory uh, analysis just to try to understand how this survival benefit would work. So in conclusion, recombinant alkaline phosphatase therapy was considered safe and very well tolerated. There were no specific side effects and no higher incidence of side effects. Uh, the treatment did not affect short-term renal improvement or renal replacement therapy need uh, in 28 days. Uh, however, the longer-term renal function from day 21 and day 28 was significantly uh, improved by recombinant alkaline phosphatase and also long-term major adverse kidney events and survival was significantly better in those patients with, uh, that were treated with alkaline phosphatase. Uh, and with that, I thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to uh, answer all your questions. Sure. I mean, thank you, Peter. Because of short time, uh, we have just. I will just take a question from the audience, and one of our guests was asking what were the other drugs which were given to the placebo and to the, the treated patients. Yeah, so these were patients in the clinic with septic shock, mainly in the ICU. So this was an on-top treatment. Uh, so patients were treated just as standard care is done right now. All the treatments that were given to all our patients and the alkaline phosphatase was given on top of that standard of care. Okay, uh, just to, another question for, from, for myself. Are those patients have been selected for being positive for endotoxemia? Uh, no, they were not. Uh, actually, uh, one thing is, and I gave it as an example, that uh, the endotoxin has phosphate groups that can be removed and it's no longer toxic, but also other compounds and circulating toxins have phosphate groups. And we have now shown in animal studies that, for example, ATP uh, is also toxic and pro-inflammatory and the uh, alkaline phosphatase is able to remove phosphate from ATP and ultimately adenosine is formed which is anti-inflammatory and tissue protective. Uh, so we now think it's not the mechanism of action is not only dependent on the endotoxin pathway, uh, but also on uh, less specific and also on other toxins that are there and that also contain phosphate groups. Okay, excellent, Peter. I thank you very much for your presentation and your interesting data. I think we need to move on. And I'm happy to welcome Pierre-Francois Latere is the chief of the intensive care service at St. Luke University Hospital. Uh, is uh, very much in, involved in shock ARDS. is a member of many national and international society. is the author of more than 180 papers, and he will talk us about adrenal modeling. So Pierre, uh, Pierre Francois, we are ready to listen to you. Okay, you hear me, Jean-Marc? 
Yes, I do. Like everyone uh, around the planet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that's for the introduction. So uh, my my short presentation here. My goal is mostly uh, to um, to show what the development is ongoing regarding uh, using adenomodulin or antagonizing adenomodulin in the context of septic shock. And so um, adenomodulin um, is something that plays an important role. Uh, in the maintenance of the vascular permeability or protecting the endothelium. So what is known in, in, in sepsis in general is that there's significant damage of the endothelium and an increased permeability, uh, at least in the patient, showing the, 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 the biggest severity. And one of the peptides playing a role uh, in, in the vascular tune and permeability is adrenomodulin. And it's a uh, 52 amino acid peptide that is considered as vasoprotective. So on the one hand, it plays a role in maintaining the vascular integrity. But at the same time, uh, when it diffuses through uh, the, uh, the vessels and goes to the, uh, the muscle and the, the, the smooth muscles, it induces a vasodilation. So it's a kind of paradox because uh, this uh, hormones uh, expressed and produced mostly by endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells as a, a kind of double action. But at least what has been observed and known already now is that there's a nice correlation in between the uh, circulating level of adenomodulin and the importance of hypertension and there's a good correlation between the need of vasopressor and the level of adenomodulin. Also, elevated adenomodulin levels have been associated with an increased mortality. And we have looked at this as others and we found that the cutoff value of 70 is clearly associated with an, a dramatic increase in mortality going above uh, 35% at, uh, at day 28. And so what is believed and known at least based on experimental study uh, is that adenomodulin um, when it's staying into the uh, endovascular space, uh, plays a role in protecting the vascular integrity and reducing the permeability. On the other hand, when it diffuses through the vessels and go into the interstitium, it induces vasodilation. And so therefore, it explains the uh, importance of correlation between adenomodulin level and the severity of shock, but at the same time, adenomodulin is important to protect uh, the vessels. So this kind of balance uh, is a challenge, of course, for a drug because you need to have uh, adenomodulin staying in the vessel and acting to protect the vessel, and at the same time, we want to prevent from hypertension. And this is how the antibody, so adenizumab, has been developed. This antibody fixed to the end terminal of adenomodulin, but does not block the action of adenomodulin into the uh, vessels, and so still is expected to protect uh, the 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 the, the, the barrier and reduce the permeability. And so, when you look at the complex of antibody together with ADM, uh, adenomodulin remains active and is able to fix to its receptors on the. Uh, endothelial part of uh, of the vessel. So this large antibody at the same time remains into the circulation and does not diffuse into the interstitium. It has a long half-life, since the uh, half-life is 15 days, and uh, the development uh, and, and the study done um, experimentally have demonstrated that when you inject the antibody staying in the vessels, 
it's able to fix ADM and capture part of the ADM located in the interstitium, but remains bioactive within the vessels. And you see that on the right part of the, the figure here, that there is a nice correlation in the activity of ADM in the circulation according to the dose of antibody given. So it shows that you are removing the ADM from the external part of the vessels into the intravascular component uh, com compartment, and, and there uh, the ADM is still active on its receptor. This has been done also in LC Volunteer, and this work comes from uh, Peter Speaker Group, where uh, according to the dose of antibody, you see that the bioactivity of ADM in the circulation increased. And uh, once again, this is not due to a change in the synthesis of ADM, but clearly to the fact that you're removing the ADM from the uh, extravascular compartment to the uh, circulating uh, level. Now, in terms of efficacy of the antibody, it has been studied in animals, and here in this model of CK ligation in mouse, uh, the administration of the antibody against adenomodulin has improved the kidney function, the requirement in fluids, the requirement in noradrenaline, but has also modulated apparently uh, the inflammatory response and there is a re reduction at least in the circulating uh, TNF and IL-6 in, uh, in these animals. I was dealing with the uh, experimental data uh, that are um, that have been published a couple of years ago, or and some of them are very recent, showing that the use of the antibody against adenomodulin uh, in a second model of uh, two hits in in pigs, at least the MRG shock followed by sepsis. Uh, was associated, interestingly, with a reduction in the need of fluid to achieve the goal of hemodynamic control, and much more animals had a rapid improvement in their shock as opposed to uh, the animals treated with vehicles. Now, of course, after the experimental data, what has been, of course, studied is the tolerance of the antibody in LC volunteers, and this is a work from the group of Peter Pickers, uh, where in a phase 1A, LC volunteer received the antibody, and this were well tolerated, whatever dose used. And in the second part of the study, for so the phase 1B, uh, the LC volunteers were receiving a continuous infusion of endotoxin for three hours, and after one hour, they were given the antibody against adenomodulin. Of course, uh, endotoxin in LC volunteers not supposed to induce shock, but still they feel sick. And interestingly, uh, what has been seen is that the LC volunteer receiving the antibody felt more rapidly better than the one receiving the vehicles in terms of the sickness score, as this can be observed uh, in this kind of model. Now, uh, after this, uh, it was ready to start a phase two trial, and this has been initiated in March this year. And the goal of this study is to enroll patients with septic shock having an associated elevation of ADM. So there is a bedside assessment of adenomodulin in these patients with shock, and if they fulfill the criteria of shock together with elevated adenomodulin, they are eligible for the study, and we plan to enroll 300 patients in a 112 uh, randomization design. One arm is a low-dose adenomodulin uh, antibody, a second arm with a, a eight to four milligrams per kilo antibody, and a third arm with placebo. And uh, currently, we have enrolled uh, already 50 patients, and we hope to complete the study by the end of uh, next year with the 300 patients. And the main objective is not only safety, will secondary endpoints include 
the more rapid improvement in shock, the duration of shock, and the change in the SOFA score over the first two and seven days uh, with a penalty associated with uh, mortality. So just to conclude at this point, so the adenitumab is a non-neutralizing antibody against adenomodulin. Uh, it stays in the uh, in vascular uh, compartment and maintains the activity of adenomodulin, but prevents from accumulating adenomodulin into the interstitium, uh, acting as a vasodilator. So it maintains vascular integrity based on experimental data. It is safe in LC volunteers, even challenged with LPS. And we hope to support, uh, by the phase two, the demonstration of a benefit in terms of shock and, and confirm the reduction in permeability and the reduction in fluid in these uh, patients. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pierre-Francois. We have to, to move on because of the time. I'm very sorry. Okay. But thank you for this very exciting new, new piece of information. Our next speaker is Richard Hodgkiss. He's from the Washington University School of Medicine, St. Louis, Missouri. Of course, he's a very well-known uh, investigator in the field. He was the one who demonstrated the problem of apoptosis uh, of human cells in, in patients. And, in, uh, and uh, clearly, his laboratory has been uh, on the forefront to propose new uh, immunoadjuvant therapy for, for, this, for this disorder. So, Richard, happy to welcome you. Uh, thank you, uh, John Mark. Uh, I'm very uh, glad to be here. So um, I'm going to try to update us on uh, some new approaches to sepsis, uh, including uh, the results of two new recent clinical trials. There's my acknowledgement slides. So um, as uh, many people uh, know, sepsis has been considered uh, the graveyard of pharmaceutical approaches. Uh, that is, there have been over 50 trials of different anti-inflammatory and anti-cytokine agents uh, to treat sepsis, and they failed uniformly. This led to a reevaluation of the concept that uh, death in sepsis were due to uncontrolled systemic inflammation. I like this slide. It uh, kind of says what I feel sometimes. Just because the path is well trodden does not mean that you're heading in the right direction. So um, what I'm going to try to uh, convince you in the very brief time here is that in sepsis, there's a new paradigm that both pro- and anti-inflammatory responses occur early in sepsis, and that as sepsis continues, there is relative immune suppression. That is, the patient's immune system is not functioning normally. It's impaired. That patients who have this immune suppression may die due to either their inability to control that primary infection or frequently what happens is they develop new secondary hospital-acquired infections. Immunity on these patients remains impaired for months, and sepsis is the most common cause for readmissions to the hospital. Um, all right, here. So a new way to treat sepsis would be to target the host immune system. That is, when you look at who are the patients that are dying of sepsis, in general, it's patients who are elderly. These patients uh, uh, have what's called 
immunosenescence, just meaning their immune system is not functioning well as you age. Other patients that tend to die from sepsis are patients with a lot of comorbidities, patients who have underlying liver disease or kidney disease, and patients who are alcoholics. These are the patients that tend to die. And the reason that they die is because this population of patients have are well known to have weakened immune systems. So it's logical to target those patients to boost immunity to improve outcomes. Boosting immunity could also decrease their incidence of hospital-acquired infections. And the other important thing, if you are able to increase the host immune system, is you will protect them against a broad range of pathogens. There are these new emerging uh, superbugs um, that are uh, very frightening, and these usually occur in patients with weakened immune systems. So if you could give agents to boost the immune system, you are likely to improve outcomes. I would also point out that uh, boosting the immune system, as people know in the uh, oncology field in cancer, that this has been the breakthrough, a transformational. There have been over 100,000 patients, many more. It's it's changing the dynamics in patients um, with cancer. And it is the most exciting area. As indicated by the ability of a a significant percentage of patients of cancer to now survive, not just have go into remission, uh, but to survive. So this this has been a topic, as indicated here in uh, the New England Journal. If you uh, do look at the literature and follow uh, medicine, the New England Journal uh, has highlighted the fact that by boosting the host immune system, uh, particularly focusing on improving the T cell, the lymphocytes, uh, that is the current new paradigm. Now, why am I talking about uh, cancer when I should be speaking about sepsis? The reason is because cancer and sepsis share many common immune suppressive mechanisms. Uh, it's uh, We have uh, discussed this as a well-recognized fact that when investigators have examined what mechanisms, that is, what are the common causes of immune suppression in patients with sepsis and cancer, they see that they share many uh, same mechanisms. For example, uh, the uh, checkpoint inhibitors, blocking uh, PD-1, it works in both infectious disease and in cancer. Uh, There's increased T regulatory cells in both. There's a production of the um, anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10 in both. The reason for this is because of the receptors, the TLR receptors that mediate uh, the uh, response of the immune cells are promiscuous, meaning that they are activated by a a variety of different types of mediators and antigens. And you have the same, these mediators released both in in cancer and in sepsis. 
So this, uh, as I mentioned, the checkpoint inhibitors are uh, leading the way in uh, this. Uh, President Jimmy Carter, who had metastatic melanoma to the brain, was treated with this. Uh, these drugs and uh, is now out two to three years. It's a fairly uh, uh, that's unheard of. It was uniformly fatal a few years ago. So what did the checkpoint inhibitors do? The uh, checkpoint inhibitors release the breaks on the T cells. The uh, program cell death ligand 1 interacts with program cell death 1 on the T cell. And that is a mechanism that the body has to down-regulate the T cell. When you have an infection, your T cells are upregulated. And so there has to be a way for the body to turn off the T cell, and that is what PD-1 does. So these checkpoint inhibitors, the anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1, which are now clinically approved for 8 to 10 different types of cancers, take the breaks off the T cell and let it function again. That's the best way to look at it. This is a, uh, demonstrated most uh, dramatically in a case I was involved with, published in The Lancet Infectious Disease, a 30-year-old female who was a victim of that uh, Brussels terrorist attack who suffered uh, a number of uh, bone injuries as well as intra-abdominal injuries. She was incredibly ill. She arrested in the uh, emergency room. She had uh, infections with multi-drug resistant pathogens, as well as the thing that was really uh, uh, causing the most serious problem was uh, mucor mycosis, an invasive fungal infection. Uh, she, after a number of weeks, the uh, invasive fungal infection, the mucor was involving the spleen and the stomach, and she went to the operating room, and those organs were removed. However, the mucor mycosis was also involving the great vessels in her abdomen. This was not able to um, be resected. You can't uh, do that. So in desperation, the uh, physicians treating her um, uh, measured her immune function and showed that her immune function was suppressed. Um, and based upon the fact that her uh, immune cells had increased expression of this program cell death one, they initiated treatment with these checkpoint inhibitors. Nivolumab, which is anti-PD-1, and interferon gamma were started on a compassionate basis. And the patient slowly resolved this infection, which um, invasive interdominal infection, really, if you're not able to resect it, is pretty much uniformly fatal. So this was felt to be, she survived and was discharged from the hospital, a major uh, evidence showing that uh, these immune checkpoint inhibitors could be used in infectious disease. Based upon that, as well as a number of animal studies, a checkpoint inhibitor trial was initiated, uh, um, supported by uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. It was a multi-center trial. And um, the uh, conclusions to be to get to several trials. As a quick summary: uh, the uh, checkpoint inhibitor was well tolerated in the patients with sepsis. There was no evidence of the checkpoint inhibitor anti-PDL1 causing a worsening cytokines. The cytokines were not uh, exacerbated. The, the no worsening fever or shock. So, so this was very the primary indicator. Uh, 
were looking for was safety and it was shown to be safe. And there was evidence on a laboratory basis that it improved immune function. Another trial that was just recently begun was done with interleukin-7. IL-7 has been called the maestro of the immune system because it works on CD4 helper cells, which are the major uh, uh, T helper cells that orchestrate the global immune response. The, these uh, uh, as you know, in HIV, it's the loss of the CD4 helper cells, and they are critical in coordinating the immune response. Uh, what previous studies from our group, as well as the numbers, have shown that when you obtain different lymphoid organs, including spleen or other organs, from patients who died of sepsis, and you compare them to patients who died of non-septic causes, you, and then we did staining for these critical immune effector cells, the CD4 T cells and the CD8 T cells. And what you can see is that there is a profound loss of the CD4 and CD8 T cells in the spleens and other organs from patients who died of sepsis. In fact, they look very similar to patients with HIV in that regard. Um, and this has been well documented, both in adult and pediatric and, and neonatal sepsis. So theoretically then, um, interleukin-7 could be helpful because it is a cytokine growth factor and increases the number of, of lymphocytes um, in response to its therapy. Um, we, uh, as I've said, IL-7 has been used. It's been a favorite of many investigators at NIAID and in the NCI to treat immune deficient patients. Uh, this was a study uh, conducted by Levy who showed that um, there was a dramatic increase in CD4 and CD8 T cells, a three to fourfold increase beginning within the first uh, week after starting. Uh, IL-7 therapy. We, uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, Bruno Francois, uh, uh, Thomas Ramelli, uh, as well as Ed Sherwood at Vanderbilt, began a trial of IL-7 in patients who had lymphopenia, had low lymphocyte counts in patients uh, with sepsis, and those results were recently published in JCI Insight. It was one of the few trials to uh, target in, uh, to enhance, the goal was to enhance immunity and as the first therapeutic trial to uh, work on improving the adaptive immune function. There were uh, 27 patients in a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, and we were looking for safety and ability to increase CD4 and CD8 T-cell counts. There were two different dosing regimens of IL-7 uh, as well as the placebo group. And what did we find out? Uh, the absolute lymphocyte counts to be entered into our study, the septic patients had to have a very low absolute lymphocyte count. And uh, the placebo-treated patients, um, over if they survived, had a slow increase uh, in their absolute lymphocyte counts. The interleukin-7 was dramatically effective in increasing 
the absolute lymphocyte counts, which are measured on your, your complete blood count in the laboratory by three to fourfold. It, importantly, it was a persistent increase. In other words, the lymphocytes stayed elevated for several weeks after stopping therapy. And so theoretically, the IL-7 uh, could improve immune system, uh, a sustained improvement to prevent these secondary infections. Shown here um, is the fact that the IL-7 increased both CD4 and CD8 T-cell counts. So it had broad effects on immunity. The uh, drug was well tolerated. The only adverse effect was a grade two to three rash. It also had effects, we, we determined, to increase the function of the T cells, help them to fight the infection. The, in conclusion, sepsis evolves into this uh, immunosuppressive state. The patients that die from sepsis in general are uh, uh, are patients who are elderly, have comorbidities. These are the ones that have the much higher uh, incidence of morbidity mortality. The immunologic defects in sepsis are very similar to those occurring in cancer, suggesting a common mechanism, and that immunotherapy that's working now in cancer may also do so in sepsis. We do believe that will be the future. Uh, of infectious disease, it will be to investigate the defects in the patients that have uh, sepsis, and you'll have targeted drugs to improve the different uh, functions of that. Interventions which provide, which with the potential to improve immune function are being studied now with the number of trials. I would like to thank my uh, sepsis team, the IL-7 team, Bruno Francois, Thomas Dax, Robin Janay, and Leon, Thomas Ramillan, Guillaume Monterey, Vanderbilt, Ed Sherwood. With our um, anti-PDL1 trials, uh, Elizabeth Colson and Dennis Grisella from BMS, Derek Angus, Sachin Yendi, Link Moldauer, Craig Coom, Bruce Smith, and uh, Elliot Krauser. Thank you very much, and uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, because of we are already behind schedule, sure. I still transmit a few two questions we get from the audience. And one of our guests asked, uh, how early do you recommend treatment with immunotherapy? And he also asked, do you, he or she, uh, sorry, do you think it's beneficial to a subgroup of patients? And this may be linked to another question I got, which is, is monitoring immunity needed to allow using uh, immunotherapy? Uh, yes, those are great questions. Those are critical questions, and they're spot on. Uh, so uh, we did not begin immunotherapy until after 36 to 48 hours uh, of sepsis, so that we believe, and there's data, that the patients move from the hyperinflammatory phase to a more predominant net immunosuppressive phase over the first few days. The data on cytokines tend to show that. So uh, there are patients, however, that like if you have a, a, a lot of comorbidities or elderly, these people have 
depressed immunity. They're walking around at baseline with depressed immunity, and they could probably treat it very early with the onset of sepsis. The secret is to develop tests to immune phenotype the patients so you know what condition their immune either in the suppressed are in the hyperinflammatory phase. So, you know, so that sort of gets to both questions. The, the secret is a good test uh, to tell the status of the immune system that will allow you to safely. We did use a low absolute lymphocyte count that had to be low and persistently low, and we believe that is one marker for immune suppression. And I have a very brief question regarding the anti-PDL1 treatment. Is it affecting apoptosis? Uh, we did not look for it in our septic patients, but there are a number of trials in animal studies, and yes, it is pretty good uh, at anti being anti-apoptotic uh, and blocking the sepsis-induced uh, cell loss. Okay, thank you very much, Richard. It was a great talk. Thank you, thank you as usual. And uh, because of lack of time, we need to move to the sure. next speaker. Okay, thank so you. I appreciate. Bye bye. Bye-bye. So the next speaker is Ashish Kana, is an intensivist uh, working at the Center for Critical Care uh, and at the Cleveland Clinic Leonard College of Medicine in Cleveland. is the Vice Chief for Research for the Center uh, and a Quality Director for the, the, the Cleveland Clinic. And so we are happy to welcome him and to listen about his presentation on angiotensin 2. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Kavalian. Um, it, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be a part of this um, World Sepsis Congress. Uh, I'd also like to thank Dr. Um, Dr. Simon Finfer, uh, Flavia Machado, and uh, Conrad Reinhardt uh, for this opportunity. And a uh, uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to whatever part of the world uh, uh, you all are tuned into as you listen to this um, next talk. So I'll be talking about <coughs> angiotensin too, and um, uh, it, this talk comes at, at an interesting time because we're almost uh, a year or more uh, out from the um, uh, publication of the uh, results of the angiotensin 2 in high output shock phase 3 trial and uh, we're almost uh, six months or more from when the drug was approved by the US FDA for use in uh, septic or other distributive shock so we are at a stage where uh, there is uh, clinical use of the drug available and also a some interesting subgroup data that I would like to share with the audience uh, today and really shed some light on how angiotensin 2 is beneficial as a, a adjunctive therapy in uh, sepsis and septic shock. So the problem that we're going to talk about today is uh, refractory uh, vasodilatory shock and uh, septic shock can most certainly evolve into a refractory vasodilatory shock, which very simplistically speaking is just hypotension that persists despite the use of high doses of vasopressors. <clears throat> now, the definition of high doses of vasopressors um, is, is, um, it has not been set to a certain standard. Various investigators have described high doses of vasopressors as anywhere between 0.2 micrograms per kilo per minute 
to all the way up to 0.8 or even one microgram per kilo per minute of norepinephrine or norepinephrine equivalent. But uh, what is very clear in literature is that exposure to high-dose vasopressors is bad in that uh, 30-day all-cause mortality ranges anywhere between 50 to 80% in patients who are exposed to uh, high-dose vasopressors and who are faced with a refractory vasodilatory shock syndrome. The vasopressor toolbox that um, every intensivist has um, as of now is largely uh, composed of a lot of catecholamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine, norepinephrine being our go-to drug to, to treat uh, hemodynamic instability in vasodilatory shock or septic shock, followed by uh, vasopressin and now, with the inclusion of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and angiotensin-2, this vasopressor toolbox seems to be more complete, and there is certainly another uh, go-to agent in the armamentorium, which has a separate mechanism of action from catecholamines and vasopressin. The important thing to remember about the usage of vasopressors in, in septic shock or vasodilatory shock is is not to rely on monotherapy. Monotherapy has been shown to be toxic at high doses, and especially monotherapy with catecholamines. Angiotensin II itself is certainly not a new agent. It has reemerged after being quiet for almost six decades or more. In the year 1957, a group of scientists uh, in, in uh, in the United States, and interestingly at Cleveland Clinic, and also uh, a group of scientists in Latin America came together and initially uh, reported the successful synthesis of angiotensin II. At that time, this agent was, was actually called hypertensin. And the initial case reports and, and you know um, case series of the use of angiotensin II were very optimistic, very favorable, but somehow in the next five or six years after it was first synthesized, uh, it, it never really got uh, a marketing or pharmaceutical industry support for production, and it kind of vanished, only to be uh, resurrected, um, say about six decades later, when in 2014, Lucknir Chavla's group at George Washington University first published the ATOS trial or the angiotensin II in high output shock trial. And this was a pilot study. It was a 20 patient study that, that, that really showed a signal to benefit where human synthetic stable angiotensin II increased blood pressure and had a catecholamine sparing effect in patients with high output shock. This led us to conduct the phase three placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blind, multicenter study of um, a compound LJPC501, or human synthetic stable angiotensin II, in patients with catecholamine-resistant hypotension, and that is what was the ATOS-3 trial. The ATOS-3 trial was done under a special protocol assessment agreement with the US FDA, which really meant that the United States Food and Drug Administration 
looked at the protocol and was in complete concurrency with the primary and secondary outcomes and the trial design. What did uh, ATHOS 3 showed? So ATHOS 3 essentially showed that uh, angiotensin 2 led to uh, a, a hemodynamic outcome, which was the primary endpoint of a map of 75 or 10 more than baseline at three hours from the initiation of uh, drug infusion in about 70% of patients treated with angiotensin 2 compared to 23.4% 20, patients treated with placebo, a highly significant outcome in, in favor of angiotensin 2. The blood pressure response to angiotensin 2 was very robust and a significantly higher blood pressure was achieved in patients receiving angiotensin 2 in the first three hours and a consistent and stable difference was seen in the angiotensin 2 and placebo arms all the way through to hour 48 of the required drug infusion. Further, <clears throat> an important secondary efficacy endpoint that was a, uh, a consequence of the primary endpoint uh, was that a cardiovascular SOFA score benefit was seen in the angiotensin 2 arm compared to the placebo arm. And a clinically very relevant additional endpoint was that patients exposed to angiotensin 2 had a significant decrease in background vasopressor usage or a catecholamine unloading effect that was significantly seen more in the angiotensin 2 arm compared to the placebo arm. The angiotensin 2 molecule led to a significant catecholamine unloading and this unloading was highly significant in the first three hours of the study drug infusion and a separation in the requirement of background vasopressors was seen all the way out to hour 48. A question that was asked was survival after initiation of therapy. So mortality as an outcome was an exploratory outcome for the ATHOS-3 trial. It was a small trial, 344 patients, and certainly not a trial that was designed to test for survival or, or for a survival benefit. We did see an initial trend to a, um, uh, improved survival with angiotensin 2, but certainly this did not translate into statistical significance. Trial results were published in August 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we have been uh, almost a year out since then, and, and the world is obviously asking a question of what to do with angiotensin 2, and where does it fit in, in terms of uh, adjunctive therapy in, in sepsis and, and septic shock. So let me uh, go over some uh, uh, subgroup data that's going to shed some light on how angiotensin 2 is, is valuable in sepsis, septic shock, and refractory vasodilatory shock. The first interesting uh, data set is a survival benefit looking at angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2 ratios. So the enzyme cascade is renin-angiotensinogen, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, and then angiotensin 2 having its downstream effects secondary to aldosterone and direct effects. We looked at a population median in the ATHOS-3 population. 
population median of an angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratio was 1.63. We divided the population to a less or higher ratio. And what we saw was that in patients with a high angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratio, which means lower endogenous angiotensin 2, in those patients, exposure to exogenous or synthetic angiotensin 2 led to a survival benefit. Now, this is a very interesting outcome and very relevant because a lot of our current population coming into emergency rooms, operating rooms, and ICUs walks around with 15, 20 years of ACE inhibitor therapy behind them. And maybe this is a interesting patient population and a relevant niche for angiotensin to when these patients have refractory or other vasodilatory shock. The other interesting uh, outcome that has been published so far is outcomes in patients with acute kidney injury. Knowing that septic AKI is a cause for morbidity and mortality in, in these patients, we looked at patients in the ATHOS-3 cohort who developed acute kidney injury after initiation of angiotensin II or placebo. And we saw that patients who were exposed to angiotensin II had a survival probability, which was almost, uh, which was which was to the tune of 53.2% compared to 29.6% in placebo. Again, a significant survival benefit in patients with AKI exposed to angiotensin II. In these patients, we also saw that their hemodynamic profile was better and they were liberated faster from renal replacement therapy if they were on angiotensin II. The other interesting question that has been asked is, uh, how do I know if my patient is going to respond to angiotensin II? Now, in the ATHOS-3 trial, the drug was started at 20 nanograms per kilo per minute, and the investigator could uptitrate the drug up to 200 nanograms per kilo per minute. In some patients, a hyper-response was seen in which case the blood pressure was extremely high at standard doses of angiotensin II, and the investigator had the option to down-titrate the study drug to less than 5 nanograms per kilo per minute. We looked at these hyper-responders to see if they had a survival benefit. And we saw that comparing patients who were on less than 5 nanograms per kilo per minute of angiotensin II with higher doses, at 30 minutes after drug initiation, patients who were on the lowest dose of angiotensin II had a survival benefit that was significantly uh, more than patients on higher doses. And this was even after controlling for a big set of disease covariates of all sorts. So an, an interesting outcome that almost tells the clinician that if your patient has a really robust blood pressure response on initial exposure to angiotensin II, and, and that response comes quickly and at the lowest possible dose, then this is a patient that probably has a physiological need for angiotensin II compared to the uh, other patients that are uh, you know, unresponsive or slow to show a response. So where does angiotensin II fit in in our treatment paradigm? Well, shock or vasodilatory shock or, or septic shock 
um, there is no going away from identification and treatment of cause, source control, antibiotics, surgery, um, whatever it takes for appropriate source control, necessary fluid resuscitation, and always norepinephrine to, to go as your first-line treatment of the, uh, the, the vasopressor side of things. But once there is inadequate hemodynamic control with norepinephrine, the message to the audience is early initiation of either vasopressin or angiotensin 2 rather than waiting for a higher dose of norepinephrine monotherapy, exhausting catecholamines, and then moving on to your second or third agent. The, the message is synergism of vasopressors because truly all three mechanisms need to be acting in synergy for appropriate blood pressure management. And in, in addition, the other adjuncts as in steroids, as in, you know, ascorbic acid, thiamine, even the need, likes of methylene blue need to be implemented earlier rather than later because the earlier you intervene, the better outcomes you would see in hemodynamics and overall outcomes of patients of, uh, with sepsis and septic shock. Thank you, and I'm open for questions. Thank you, Ashish. I think because, again, uh, lack of time, I will just transmit one question we get from the audience. And the question is, how do you feel about replacing norepinephrine as first-line vasopressor in favor of angiotensin 2 or uh, vasopressin, given the biological deficiency of vasopressin in sepsis patients? Well, even though angiotensin 2 is highly potent and, uh, and the initial data is, is very favorable, I would still not recommend angiotensin 2 as your primary vasopressor. I think norepinephrine makes physiological and pharmacological sense. It's easy to titrate, and it has been a drug that's been in use for uh, you know, almost 60, 70, 80 years, and, uh, and the, the data is, is way more... Uh, than, than the available data on, on, on angiotensin 2. So even though angiotensin 2 is a very potent vasopressor, I would, I would restrict it for uh, vasodilatory shock that reaches a point of hemodynamic instability and is difficult to manage with norepinephrine versus using it as a first-line agent. Well, thank you so much, Hashish. I think we, we need to conclude. Uh, thank you. It, it was you. A, a great session. Um, also, I would like to thank uh, the, the chairs of this Congress, Flavia Machado, Simon Finfur, and Conoran Heyer for putting all together this great meeting. Uh, I would like to invite the audience to visit the, the website uh, to sign the World Sepsis Declaration and to follow uh, all the activities on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also would like to thank Baxter for supporting this session. With that, uh, I think we, I can close the, the session. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. Session 11, Prevention of Infection and Sepsis, will be available next Thursday. Until then, have a great week.